All right, good morning. We're jumping back in the Word. I hope you got your Bible. If you don't, snatch it up. You know what we're fixing to do. Uh, we are jumping back into 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I don't want to spend a lot of time uh, getting there. I'm ready to get into it, but as I always say, as a quick reminder, this is just me unpacking the Scripture. Tonight, we're going to come together and as the church and talk about it, so I'd love for you to come be part of that. Uh, we're in Tempe, Arizona. You can find us online. We say this every week through social media. You can contact us directly however you want, through email, through website, um, and we'll tell you how to find us. But we'd love for you to come hang out, spend some quality time praying, uh, eating, hanging out, and then laying into the Word pretty heavily. So uh, anyhow, love for you to come be part of that. We're continuing to work through this cross-shaped life series. And as I re- continue to repeat, and will continue to repeat, we uh, have a theme from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, that Paul said, For I've decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So that's where we're coming up with a cross-shaped life, uh, a life that's shaped by the cross. And that's bringing us to today. Which is knowing that I am saved. Now this is a pretty heavy topic and many of us, even as believers, if we're honest, uh, at times we still struggle to know, is God satisfied with us? Is God cool with us? Uh, we, we find ourselves feeling like, um, maybe we aren't now and never will be good enough for God. Like, is God ever going to be pleased with us enough? And and I feel like it's a constant battle to make him happy. But that thought expresses that there's something deeper wrong in our understanding of, of who we are. It exposes we don't really understand what occurs when we are saved. It's being born again. It's something new from something dead. That's what it means to be born again, to be saved. It's something new from something dead. So we're going to look at that today in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm looking at uh, chapter 5. I'll read a couple of verses. I'm going to hit, I'm going to skip over. I'm going to link two together here. So verse 17, he says, Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And then in the final verse of that chapter, he says in verse 21, For our sake he made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Man, two of the greatest verses in the whole Bible. Let me pray. Lord, I love you. Thank you so much for your word. It is so awesome. Thank you for the opportunity today to preach it, unpack it, and share it. And I look forward to tonight and the time we get to talk over this uh, and, and just draw closer to you, Lord. I pray if anybody's here today that doesn't know you, that they will be moved to give their life to you. And for those of us who have followed you for you know a long time, God, help us to be reminded of who we are and the beauty of the gospel. I ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, in 1868, a post office was opened on this wide plain in an area known as the Arizona Territory. And a guy by the name of Philip Dupa, uh, who was riding around with a friend named Jack Swilling, the two of them saw the ruins of these native peoples that were laying there, and they decided to uh, begin a, uh, begin a, a settlement there. And as they started farming around the little water source, this little river that was there, and they started trying to come up with a name for it. 
And this DuPont guy figured it would be neat to name it after this people that had been there so many thousands of years before them. And so they wanted a name that symbolized rising, uh, a rising civilization from the ruins of another one. And there's a mythical bird, you might know very well the story, that would burst into flames and then, you know, crash into ashes, but then would rise new and pure from those ashes, and it's called a phoenix. I'm sure you probably know that. And so now, that's the name they chose, and that name now, that that city now, that settlement, has become the fifth largest city in the nation. Uh, Atlanta, Georgia is similar in the sense that the phoenix is a symbol for Atlanta as well, because you may not know this, but Atlanta in 1864 uh, by General Sherman during the Civil War was burned to the ground. And Atlanta rebuilt and rose from the ashes to become one of the largest cities in the South. So today Paul's talking about something similar, but not quite the same. It's much more than that. What Paul's talking about today is is our death, and that our death is certain, but in Christ we are reborn. We are reborn into not a newer, better, more per pure version of the same person again, like a phoenix would be, but we're made into something completely different, something totally different, something totally, as believers, listen man, we may fail to truly understand uh, what that means, and we fall into getting frustrated in this like depressing cycle that just keeps going around and around and around where we try to be good enough to please God. Well, Paul puts that straight in these verses here. So today we're going to look at answering two of the most, I would say, common questions in the Christian faith, my opinion. But I would think these are two of the most common questions in the Christian faith. We're going to look at how the Word answers both of them. How can I know I'm saved? All right. And what am I responsible for? So how can I know I'm saved and what am I responsible for? So let's start with the first one. How can I know I'm saved? Look back at verse 16. So he says in verse 16, Paul writes, from now on, from now on, therefore, we regard no one, no one. He's building off of last week and he's saying based on this, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Paul's saying it's not the Jesus, the human Jesus that we, all of us, are acquainted with. It's the risen Jesus that we know. It's the risen Jesus that we know. And as a result of that, Paul doesn't see anybody who's in Christ as the same either. They're different. He sees them differently. We see Christ as the risen Christ, and he's saying that we, he doesn't regard people as the people. He regards them as the risen person. We can say all kinds of heroic things about Jesus the man, for instance. We can ascribe all the greatness in the world to him for all of the great, wonderful things he did, all the parables he told, all the wisdom he spit out. But without a resurrection, he is dead and a liar. Dead. He's a fraud. Paul even goes on in another place to say we are the most pitied. To be the most pity, we're pitiful for what we believe. He, he's dead if that's not true. A lot of good advice, a lot of positive things, yeah, but, but they lead nowhere different from anybody else before him or anybody since him. They all lead to the same end, which is death, if there is no resurrection. But that's not the Jesus that we know. 
That's what Paul's saying. Paul says we now regard him. He is presently alive. The Jesus that we know is presently alive. And Paul says he regards believers in Christ that exact same way right now as already alive. Look at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You've probably seen this on bumper stickers online, uh, on people's pages. You've probably seen tattoos even of it. I, I think it's one of the more familiar verses in the Bible. But it's one of the most amazing verses at defining salvation. I don't know if you've ever really took the time to read exactly what it's saying, but it is huge. The key word in here is not necessarily the new creation. It is the in Christ. That's the key. In Christ there. That's our identity. That's who we are. In Christ. Look, verse 17, Paul says, in Christ. Verse 18, Paul says, through Christ. Verse 19, Paul says again, in Christ. Verse 20, Paul says, for Christ. Verse 21, Paul says, in him, in Christ. And clearly, that's where Paul's focus is on us being joined with Christ, us being in Jesus. That's what being saved is. That's being a Christian. It's not about being a better person. It's not about making sure our good things are better than our bad things. Or that we do good things and avoid bad things. Or we're the best us we can be. It's not any of that. It's, it means becoming something else. It means a death and a rebirth. Two different things. Not, not a better you, but Christ. That's what, it's, what he's saying. My identity is no longer Dave Wiley. Dave Wiley is dead on a cross. My identity... Who I am now in the eyes of God is Jesus. That, that's, that's what the word says. He is alive in me. That's what it means. I know I don't always live that way. I know that. I'm not claiming to be the perfect Jesus. I'm not saying that. I know I don't always live that way, but I always desire to live that way. And that's the evidence that I am something new because I desire to live a life that honors him. Look, we're all born, the point is this, we're all born into Adam. That is the old. We're all born a child of Adam, part of that creation that Adam chose to cast into death because he chose sin. But if we are in, Paul calls the new Adam, if we are in the new Adam, which is Jesus Christ, we are no longer left in the death of that old creation. But we are a new creation. Something new. Look, John 3.16, or John 3.16 is in John chapter 3, but the discussion that leads to that verse comes when Paul is, uh, excuse me, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And Jesus tells Nicodemus that unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. That entering the kingdom of God requires you to be born again. A new creation. And, and, and uh, Nicodemus even wrestles with that. How do I go back into the womb? But Jesus is literally meaning you need to be a creation that didn't previously exist. Something new. And notice the tense. Back in verse 17, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Present tense. It's already done. You are currently that now, period. The old, look what he says, has passed away. Past tense, it's already occurred. 
You, we are or is a new creation, present tense, has passed, past tense. It's a done deal. John five twenty four. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has, present tense, has eternal life right now. He does not come into judgment, but has passed, past tense. So he's saying judgment's not coming for you. Why? Because you put your faith in him and you now have eternal life. Judgment's not coming from you and you have already passed from death to life. He says Jesus' own words. You see the time frame here? Romans 8, 1, my favorite, one of my favorite verses in the Bible there is, Therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ right now, there is nothing to condemn you. Nothing. Colossians 3, verse 3. Paul said, for you have died, past tense, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have, you have died. It's already been done. And now, presently, your life is hidden, already done, is hidden presently with Christ in God. And you can't get much more safe than that. Now, you may not feel like the old's passed away. I get that. But it has that's the point. It has. In fact, your old self, listen to me, your old self was as good as dead when you took your first breath. You understand that, right? Your old self was as good as dead when you took your first breath. You're just walking out your days. But Christ, in Christ, we take a deep breath of the Spirit. And He gives life. And we become alive. And life gets richer and more beautiful even when we suffer, it's still richer and more beautiful. And we continue to look forward to the full inheritance of that life that we already now have. We already have it. But we're looking forward to how great it's going to be as it matures. And the old life has already passed away. It's already gone. The new has already come. It's already a done deal. You're reading the same verse I'm reading, right? So if you're a child of God, listen to me, if you're a child of God, but you still feel bound to the old, that's because you're clinging to a corpse. Do you hear me? you hear what I'm saying to you? If you are a child of God, but you still feel bound to the old self, it's because you're clinging to a corpse. It is dead. We can't go back to who we were. We can't. But we can struggle with who we are in the new. We can do that. We can't go back to who we were, but we can struggle. But though we may struggle, our position in Christ is sealed and our focus is no longer on earthly things. Our focus is on eternal things. We're no, no longer seeking our own desires, but we're seeking to please God. Sin may happen, but it just won't satisfy anymore. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't entertain anymore because the new has come and the old is dead. And though you may slip into sin and it may happen, it just doesn't have any satisfaction or anything to it. So, if in fact you are in Christ, you cannot lose that. Do you understand what new creation, you cannot lose it. You can't be uncreated new. You can't be unborn again. It's not some gift that you get back, give back because you don't like it anymore. You are something new and the old is gone so there's no way to switch back to it the great analogy so commonly associated with this passage is the butterfly which is really good because a butterfly 
who was a caterpillar and is now a butterfly, the, the butterfly cannot go back to being the caterpillar. The butterfly cannot decide, I don't like being a butterfly anymore. I'm going to go back to a caterpillar. Can't do that. A butterfly cannot suddenly say, well, I've been a terrible butterfly for so long, so I must be a, a caterpillar again and just not know it. No, it doesn't matter. It's still a butterfly. It might be an awful butterfly, but it's a butterfly. And the caterpillar is gone. It's gone. There's, there's no going back. Satan's, Satan's greatest weapon, I really believe this, say, Satan's greatest weapon among believers, I think, is to confuse and to cause doubt so that, you know, you're not really still saved, especially when you sin. Man, that sin was bad. That sin was bad. You can't still, God can't really still, you can't still be saved. If you were saved, you wouldn't have done that. I mean, you wouldn't have done that. You wouldn't have done that again and again and again. How can you be saved? You're not really saved. Then you begin to doubt that Salvation is enough anyway. Well, even if I am saved, it can't be enough by itself. I've got to still do a certain amount of good or a certain amount of not, a, you know, cut out so much bad. Can't just be enough by itself. And then you start to doubt that it's real at all. Is this whole thing even real? Is any of it real? That's, the, that's Satan in our ear, man. If you truly belong to Christ, though, you will battle with this at times. I guarantee you will. You will battle with this at times if you're in Christ. But apart from Christ, that's no battle from you. If you're not in Christ, that's no freaking battle at all because you don't worry about your salvation the same way. It's not nothing you're sweating that. You're not upset about how Jesus feels about certain things. That's not, not something that you're sweating. So it becomes evidence in the wrestle that you are saved that you do belong to christ but if we stop hearing this enemy's lie if we stop hearing him whispering in our ear all that doubt even from other believers who say you can't you could lose your salvation if we stop listening to that maybe remind ourselves of this verse maybe memorize it man say it repeatedly when those times come remembering who you already are right now if we started doing that, then maybe our focus would move from our own concerns about our own faith and our own salvation over and over and over. And we might start sharing our hope with a dying world, which was the point Paul was coming to. So how is it possible that we're already right with God? How, how is that possible that we're already right with God right now? How, how can we know that we can't lose it besides you know, that verse? Well, look at verse 18. What's the first few words? All this is from God. It's all the work of God. He does it all. Who through Christ reconciled us, past tense, to himself. Reconciled us, past tense, to himself. He's already done it. All this is from God. All of this is from God. All of this is from God. Through Christ. I don't know how many other ways to say that. He did it all. It is all him. Christ reconciled. Look at the language. Through Christ. Christ reconciled us. It's his action on us. And it's past tense. And he did it to God by the hand of God. It's above our pay grade to do it. We can't do it. How in the world are you going to save yourself? It's above our pay grade to do it. And we can't even honestly comprehend completely. How it's done in the first place. It's so heavy what he's saying here. And that's why we believe it by faith. We trust it to be true even when we can't completely explain it. It's grace. We got all kinds of cute little definitions of grace, but it's not definable. It is so far beyond what, what we can say and do and understand that we have to embrace it by faith to some degree. Here he's saying God 
in and as Christ was reconciling us to himself. There's a wild picture of the, the, the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit, all here as one working. We are his, and it's his business to hold us safe. Look, look, look at John chapter 10, verse 27. I love this passage. Jesus says these words. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I know them. And they follow me. I Look what he says. I give them eternal life. I give it to them. And they will never perish. Watch what he says. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, what if you decide to jump out on your own? What if you decide you don't want to be in that hand anymore? Uh, no one will snatch them out of my hand. That includes you, bruh. <laughs> you can't. You can't take, you think that Satan can't take you out of Jesus' hand, but you could take yourself out? Look, what else he says? Is that ain't bad enough? He go, or heavy enough? He goes on, verse 29. My Father, who has given them to me. So, right, let me pause. He's saying, if you are a believer, you are a gift from the Father to the Son. So, you are a gift from the Father to the Son. That's what he's saying. He is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So he's saying that no one would dare snatch you if you put your faith in Christ. No one would dare, no one would dare snatch you out of his hand. But then he goes farther and says, but the Father gave you to me and no one's able to take you out of his hand. And then look what he says, just in case you're getting a little confused, he just makes it heavier. Verse 30, I and the Father are one. And you're in there. Man. Paul goes on and says reconciled there. It means not only that the debt has been paid. That's kind of justified. We're declared not guilty. But he goes, reconciled means our relationship with God has been restored to what it was created to be. We've moved from enemies and criminals to innocent and free, but also to family. To being in a right relationship as a child of God. Verse 19, he goes on, he says, That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him. Now, when he says the world here, he's not talking about the world in the sense that everyone in it. Obviously, because not everyone's saved. And salvation comes by faith, not by force. Hear me? Salvation comes by faith, not by force. So, that's not, he doesn't mean that the whole world has been reconciled to him. What he means is in scope. What he's talking about is that the reconciliation is available to the entire world, to every tribe, nation, and tongue, not just the Jews. That's what he's saying. And he says he's not, that, not counting our sins against us. Man, this is what it means to be saved. Right now, presently, not counting your sins against you. Past, present, future. Not counting your sins against you. The Old Testament promised this repeatedly. It was fulfilled and accomplished in Christ's sacrifice on the cross. But the Old Testament hoped for it. Psalm 1, I'll give you a handful really quick. Psalm 103, 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. How far is the east from the west? Infinite directions. Infinite directions. It means they're gone. They're gone. Micah seven nineteen. You, God, will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. 
Isaiah 38, 17. In love, you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. You don't look at them anymore. They're gone. Isaiah 4, 25. Love this verse. For uh, He says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Jeremiah 31, 34. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. You hear what he's saying there? It's perfectly pictured in the woman caught in adultery. If you know the story, you can go read it, uh, where the the uh, the Pharisees bring this woman who was caught in adultery. Caught in that. She's guilty as all. Bring her to Jesus and say, hey, you know what? She's supposed to be stoned for her sins, and she is guilty. And you know what Jesus does? He bends down and starts to write in the dirt. There's all kinds of ideas and speculation about what he wrote. Maybe he drew a picture. Maybe he wrote a verse. Maybe he wrote a reference. People got all kinds of ideas. But the Bible doesn't tell us. Who knows? The point is that what he did is he touched the dirt. He reached down and touched the dirt. And there's some seriously powerful symbolization there of God, literally God, reaching down in Jesus Christ to be among dirty sinners. And if you know what happens, she was guilty, but God, Jesus said, let he who has, uh, who's, he's without sin cast the first stone, and all of them drop their stones and leave because they're all sinners too. And then he who is no sinner and has the right to judge her says, neither do I judge you either. Go and sin no more. All right, now, that is a perfect example of not counting her sins against her because she was a sinner. She was caught in the act, but he didn't count her sins against her. How can he do that? How can he get away with that? Well, verse 21, 2 Corinthians 5, I'm skipping down to the last verse for the point here because th- this really hammers home the, this part, and then we'll look at the other part. But he says in verse 21, for our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the meaning of the cross. This is what the cross is about in every way, shape, and form. It's the complete work of God for our sake. Look what he's saying. For our sake is something we could never do. We couldn't do it. God solved the riddle of our sin. Look at this now. God solved the riddle of our sin. He had to remain just. He had, but he loved us completely at the same time, but he also had to keep his word. For instance, he said, if you sin, you die. Plain and simple. He said, each person's accountable for their own sin, and all people sin. So all people die. He said he would not dwell with sin. It's all in his word. So what does he do? How, does he just start over? No, because he loves his creation. How can he still love? How can he be just? How can he do both? Does he excuse their sin? No, because he's a just God. So how does he solve it? The one who sinned against, listen to me, becomes the one who is to blame. The one who is sinned against becomes the one who is to blame. The one who is perfect takes upon himself the sin of those who've betrayed him. Can't even put my brain around this. This is grace as beautifully pictured as it can be. And he dies with that sin. Dies with that sin. Furthermore, he places his righteousness on them so that they are only seen as a child of God. That God sees them as his own 
child. Isaiah 61 verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord for my soul shall exalt in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. That's what Paul's talking about that's happened. God, uh, uh, God made him who is without sin to be sin for us. Now, he's not saying that Jesus became sinful. That's not what he's getting at. The fact that Paul notes that he had he knew no sin means he was sinless. So he's not making him a sinner. What's being explained here is that a perfect, innocent person accepted the full penalty for all of the world's sin. Making him the target of God's wrath. That's what that's, read Isaiah fifty three sometime. Wow. It's all over the Old Testament. Some of the toughest words in the Bible, even the most familiar words in the New Testament, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It's not just simple little gift giving. He, his son was butchered. That's what it means. That it, There was a great exchange that happened. And when Jesus reached that point where he knew he was coming to the cross in John 12, verse 27, he says, now my soul is troubled because it's, He's reached the point in his life where he knows he's headed to the cross. And he says, but what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. That's what he's saying. He came for the cross. This is what it's all about. It's not just as Jesus died. He took our sin upon himself in order to die. In order to die. The perfect offering because he alone is the one sinned against. And he had to be perfect or the exchange was just sin for sin. You understand, right? He had to be perfect or the exchange was just sin for sin. However, the one who is without sin and sinned against, but watch this, both serves the verdict on sin and also accepts the penalty of sin. He is the one that serves the verdict on sin and also accepts the penalty on sin. The greatest act of love in all of the history of creation. And as a result, we are clothed in Jesus' righteousness, made right before God. That's what that means, because Jesus is. But notice there's no long list of spiritual to-dos here. Did you catch that? They're not there. So how do we live this then practically? Like, what do we do with this practically? How does this help us stop sinning? Well, the cross in itself doesn't stop our sin. It doesn't. But it allows, listen, it allows for us to stop sinning. What, what do I mean by that? Well, it provides a place for our sin to die. That's what the cross does with Christ on that cross. What, what we must do is stop being enticed. That's the trick. We need to, excuse me, stop being enticed by looking at our old self and the sin that seemed so enjoyable. We need to focus our gaze on the man on the cross. And we need to focus our attention on seeing our sin on him nailed there upon that cross. And recognizing his righteousness is ours only, only because he took our sin up there. Focusing on what, or excuse me, focusing on that will do far more to stop us from sinning than all our best attempts to abstain from it. So he says, you know, how can I know I'm saved? The other question here is, what am I responsible for? This is super quick. 
Look at verse 19. He says, and entrusting to us the message of uh, reconciliation. Verse 18, he mentioned God who gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So implore there is similar to that word in verse 11, persuade, that we talked about before, that is really unpopular in modern day evangelism. But notice, he says, God is making his appeal through us. So when he says imploring, what he's really saying is God is imploring you through us. God is making his appeal through us. As ambassadors, we represent him. We represent his kingdom. We represent him as king. And we are entrusted, Paul said, with a responsibility. That's to tell of reconciliation. To walk people through what it means to be reconciled to God. So what's the ministry of reconciliation? He says it twice here. Well, he describes it in 18 and 20, but then he defines it in this last sentence of verse 20. He says, we implore, okay, that's an act of disciples, that they would implore people. He says, on behalf of Christ, so that's an act of Jesus. So they're imploring. There's an act of Jesus going on there on behalf of Christ. And then he says, that you be... So that's an act of the new believer that you would be reconciled. And that act of reconciliation is something that God does. So he's literally saying that as disciples they implore on behalf of Christ, something that Jesus does, that you would be, that's something you're doing as as a believer, a new believer, reconciled to God. That's something that God's doing. It's an intentional act of the disciples, the complete work of God through Christ, and the intentional response of a new believer. That's that's the ministry of reconciliation laid out there. So it's our job here to share it, to persuade, to implore. But it's the complete act of God, the one who we are representing as ambassadors, if anyone responds in faith. So we should be confident to implore others to believe. You know what I'm saying? How amazing that God has a purpose for us in his plan. Ephesians 2, verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. So he says, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This ministry of reconciliation, of sharing our faith, of, of encouraging people, walking them through the gospel, is something he prepared for us to do before we became believers. You all know or should know Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. It's something he's given us to do. Second Corinthians 5, we just read it. Verse 20, again, it says, therefore we are ambassadors of Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Let me close with this illustration really quickly. Uh, Brian Hedges, I read it uh, in a book he wrote called License to Kill, which is a fantastic book. And I'm just going to read the illustration because the way he wrote it is actually really good. So he said, Greek mythology tells the story of Ulysses and his journey home following the Trojan War. Among the dangers Ulysses and his crew faced were the sirens. They were beautiful, dangerous bird women who lured sailors to shipwreck and death through their beauty, enticing voices and enchanted songs. 
Desiring to hear them sing, yet leery of their seductive power, Ulysses filled the ears of his fellow sailors with wax and had himself lashed to the mast of the ship so that he could hear the sirens' voices without succumbing to their mesmerizing music. Had it not been for the ropes, Ulysses would have perished. But another story is told about the sirens involving Jason, the leader of the Argonauts. Like Ulysses... He too faced the alluring beauty of the enticing music of the sirens, but his strategy didn't involve wax or ropes. Instead, Jason brought Orpheus, a musician so talented that he could tame beasts and move mountains. The more alluring music of Orpheus broke the spell of the sirens so that Jason and the Argonauts were unmoved by their enchantments. Brian says, some people try to fight sin by metaphorically filling their ears with wax or strapping themselves to the mast with the ropes of external rules and regulations. But their hearts are still captivated by the siren's uh, song and, uh, of sinful pleasure. The gospel commends a better way, the power of a new affection. By setting our hearts on Christ, we can be captivated by a sweeter and more satisfying song. That's what we do in response to knowing that he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we could be the righteousness of God. Maybe uh, you don't realize this yet, but you need to hear it, that he loves you that much. And because he so loves you, that Jesus made the greatest exchange in human history. That's the gospel. The cross is your opportunity. It is an opportunity for you to be made alive in his death on that cross. It is an opportunity for you to be set free from sin and to be alive. To have a purpose in this life and eternity. Not to come to the negotiation table with Jesus and talk it out. Not to sit down with him and hash out the positives and the negatives. But to be aware that you are a sinner and that death is all over you. And to tell him on your knees, on your face, as you walk down the street, I don't know how you need to do it, but that you trust that he is who he says he is. That he's not just some man from history, but that he is alive even now, right now. And that you would respond by faith and say, I trust you, Jesus, to be my Savior. Can you do that today? Do it. However you want to do it. Just tell him. And then tell us because we want to pray with you. Lord, I love you. I thank you for your word and for this time. You're an amazing, incredible, perfect God. I I pray, Lord, that you help us be able to hold in our hearts what your word says and let it guide each and every step we take. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.